This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, everyone. My name is Seth Dare, and I'm here with JJ Janflon. I'm back, everybody. She is back. How, how was uh, PhD land? Uh, stressful and not so great, but still, I'm doing okay, guys. I'm plugging along. One day I will be Dr. JJ. Hmm. Dropping hot truths on this podcast. And Seth will be writing something in the UN. I'm supposed to be writing something and get published. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I should do that. It'll get there. On a different topic. Mm-hmm. But today we are going to talk about the Rohingya. What do we know about the Rohingya? So I think that this is interesting. I mean, obviously... If, if you've watched the news at all recently, I would say that probably the Rohingya have popped up almost as much as sort of the situation in North Korea in terms of things pundits are talking about. Right, with words like ethnic cleansing, maybe genocide. Exactly. But so what the Rohingya are themselves is they're an ethnic minority group, um, the majority of whom are Muslim, but not all Rohingya are Muslim. That's a misnomer. It's just the majority are. And they are a Sufi version of, of Sunni Islam. Exactly. So it's they're a minority within a minority, unfortunately. And they have lived primarily in Southeast Asia, um, stretching from Thailand to uh, Myanmar. Uh, Myanmar is also sometimes referred to as Burma. That's its own little separate issue, but we are going to be going by calling it Myanmar. So in Myanmar itself, there were about 1.1 million Rohingya living there. They speak a distinct dialect. They are not recognized by uh, the Myanmarian government as being an official ethnic group, and they are denied citizenship. Because Myanmar does have about 135 recognized ethnic groups. The Rohingya are not one of them. And since 1982, they the Rohingya have not been permitted citizenship. So you kind of have a stateless people. It's not all too different, actually, from what you see happening to a variety of Jewish com- communities in Eastern Europe pre-World War II. They're a stateless people. And because they're a stateless people, they tend to live in almost camp-like settings, or again, to make the Jewish connection, kind of in these little ghettos that are set in separated they have no state rights yet at the same time they're not allowed to leave the state without government permission that's difficult i mean you have this ethnic group that has been recognized in some ways existing at least going back into the 12th century having groups in india having groups in bangladesh working you know across southeast asia but really, sort of in, starting in the 1950s on, you sort of have particularly really popping up in 1962 when the Myanmar government changes after a military coup, you really start to see a difference in how, like a definitive legal difference in how this group of people is treated. A few other notes. Uh, the Rohingya is a self-identifying term that they call mm-hmm. themselves, which the government does not recognize as a valid term. There was a partial 
type of identification called a white card, which was a temporary uh-huh. res- residency. And the white card gave some limited rights, but was not proof of citizenship. Therefore, you're not a citizen even with that. There's different opinions on what, you know, what people say. And, and part of what's at issue there is there are narratives. There is the Rohingya narrative, and there is the narrative that they have in Myanmar about who the Rohingya are and why they're not deserving and how they're illegal and so on and so forth. And so you, you have competing narratives that they are conveying to the world. Yeah. And I would say that recently, and we're going to talk about in a minute sort of the current issue, but I would say kind of from the 1970s on, there has sort of been this prevailing narrative within Myanmar that the Rohingya are involved in terrorist activities or activities against the state, that there are these foreign people who have come in that are trying to subvert the government. And as we've seen even in the U.S., once someone is labeled a terrorist, it's one, very difficult to get that label to go away, and two, that opens up that particular group to a lot of violence uh, labeled as sort of a crackdown or labeled as necessary by the state. When things really started to kind of there, – there have been reports, like I said, going on really from the 1950s on, but really sort of picking up in the 60s and 70s about a lot of Rohingya fleeing Myanmar, uh, heading into Malaysia, Bangladesh, Thailand, primarily those three, and then having issues that we're going to talk about later within Bangladesh, Malaysia, and Thailand about being recognized as people. Because the problem is is that if you're not a citizen, it's very difficult to get refugee status because you're fleeing one state to another, but that first state doesn't recognize you. So we're going to talk about all that in a minute. This is one of those really complicated things in international law. But what happens is, is that in October of 2016, there's the killing of nine border police. So these are Maymar agents. And it said, we don't have a lot of details on it, that it was a group of armed Rohingya, an armed Rohingya group. So that then led to a security crackdown on Rohingya areas, which included reports from Rohingya groups say that what they faced was killing, rape, arson and basically mass pillaging and that from there then a ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya started and so you have everything from UN officials saying an ethnic cleansing has happened to uh, different officials including US officials saying that an ethnic cleansing is happening and as a result of that we're seeing mass fleeing of the Rohingya into other areas of Southeast Asia, primarily based on just where people can go. As Seth and I have talked about when we've talked about refugee flows, particularly in the North uh, Korea podcast, people go wherever will take them. But primarily what happens is whatever, if, if they're moving, quote unquote, illegally, it's wherever a trafficker can take them. So we're seeing Rohingya end up in Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, and then being listed as IDPs. And Seth, what's an IDP? That is an internally displaced person. So if you don't is, if you don't leave the mean? country, yeah. you're an IDP. So you essentially have a lot of the same problems as a refugee. You might be in a place where you need help or you're unfamiliar with the part of the country or the language and you probably don't have your local resources. Like if you were a farmer, you might not have your farm or you might not have your cattle. And so it's a very tenuous situation. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. But so uh, my question would be, what is ethnic cleansing? So ethnic cleansing is the, the mass killing, or sometimes as it's phrased, disappearing of a particular ethnic group that's carried out by the state or majority actors within the state. So the Holocaust is an ethnic cleansing. Uh, the Armenian genocide is an ethnic cleansing. And so the Rohingya are saying because they're, one, physically being driven out of the state in which they live, that they weren't recognized, but then two, that they're actively being killed, they're being exterminated. That is a cleansing. It's a it's a very scary term, I think, because it's a very cold sort of clear term. What really me- it means is that there is a mass mass massacres are happening. And when the United Nations uses that term, which they recently have, that's not a media term. It actually has a legal de- mm-hmm. international law definition, and that's why they're using it. And it's, I mean, these are, I don't, maybe if you don't listen to a lot of sort of UN things, these are, these are fighting words basically on the UN end. Because there's a lot of ways when you have refugee flows or you have people um, who are labeled as IDPs or people who are being labeled as refugees or not, that happens a fair bit uh, around the world. And there are ways to phrase it that are kind of a little bit more warm and fuzzy, you know, as mass human migration. You see in North Korea, moving into China, they're economic migrants, you know. But for the UN to call it out and say, no, like we're pretty sh- like the, a UN official rather to say this is an ethnic cleansing is is very serious because, as Seth mentioned, this is a legal term. So it starts certain legal balls rolling. We should also mention the more recent incident in August 2017, which was the Iraq and Rohingya Salvation Army, where they claim responsibility for attacks on police and army posts. More than 100 people yeah. died. They said it was defensive. Government declared them a terrorist organization. There are varying opinions on this group. They are a very small group that is thought to be in the hundreds. And when you have you know, over 300,000 Rohingya that have left Myanmar recently with a forced migration, regardless of what fault the Rohingya might have, it's hard for me to look at that and justify that type of action on over 300,000 people. Well, and you have things too, like you have the French president coming out, Macron saying that the military's campaign, the main army's military campaign, is a genocide. Uh, You have President Trump from the U.S. saying that the violence against the Rohingya Muslims uh, needs to be stopped. Mike Pence coming out saying that it's been done with terrible savagery, burning villages, driving the Rohingya from their homes. Uh, a number of humanitarian organizations saying that military members are just have come into Rohingya communities and just started firing indiscriminately into the crowd. That there's been mass uh, sort of panic and incredible acts of sort of rape, violence, just incredible cruelty. I saw one commenter on an Al Jazeera post uh, who's a journalist on the ground saying that it, it's very rape of Nanking esque. And sort of the the level of intense violence that's being done in these areas, and what you have to remember too is that even for the Rohingya who are not listed as I as internally displaced people, so the Rohingya who are moving throughout Myanmar, uh, trying to find a safe location or trying to get out, they're still contained within these Rohingya areas that have long been listed as 
illegal housing or illegal communities. So it's not like there's a particular safe place that you can call home if you are a Rohingya within Myanmar because you're not listed as a citizen. And this, I think, takes us into what's happening when I think we have this sort of warm and fuzzy view, or at least I did before I started studying, that when people are refugees, once they get out of the state that's causing them harm, or where harm is being done to them, they're safe. And it's the sort of weird, congratulations, welcome home moment. Uh, that's very rarely the case. A lot of times the neighboring states that are taking in these refugees, especially when there's a mass exodus, are not happy about this added population for whatever reason, either because they feel that it is against the majority religion of the area, it's against the majority ethnicity, they feel that it's a threat to their national borders, it's just more mouths to feed. This, you know, large refugee flows do cause a burden for new states. Whether or not you feel then that those states have sort of an ethical need to care for people once they're in their borders or not you know this is sort of a thing so you have things like the rohingya that are entering bangladesh have reported severe mistreatment once they've come in saying that violence has been continued on them with like border police trying to force them back and that they have been placed in refugee camps that have very little services available to them or that are incredibly cramped, incredibly dangerous, that people are getting sick. And then and the main thing is that what came out in January was the Bangladeshi government suggested moving all of these Rohingya refugees, tens of thousands of them as they flood into Bangladesh, to place them on a remote island. So basically to kind of intern them away from the legal Bangladeshi population. The problem with this and why, and why that island plan has been attacked by a lot of different human rights groups and we'll, we'll link to you one of those reports is that that island is labeled as uninhabitable and is known for incredible flooding during monsoon season so just imagine if if our solution say for refugees in the u.s was to send them to hurricane devastated areas right before a storm hits and say ah you know oh. you'll figure it out unfortunately puerto rico at the moment yeah, exactly. No, exactly. Um, and that, and you have Bangladeshi officials coming out and saying, you know, uh, Bangladesh's foreign minister is saying that a genocide is happening, yet the prime minister is saying that Bangladesh will take refugees temporarily, but Myanmar should take their nationals back. Myanmar turning around and saying, they're not our nationals, they're terrorists. And, and so it's just, it's a very dangerous thing where you have mass overcrowding and that is very, very dangerous. And that's and that's sort of one of the things that UN has talked about, pulling up abuses, not just of things that have happened in these camps, but particularly things that are happening within Myanmar. Um, the UN, and hopefully, I mean, it's supposed to be in by end of September, so hopefully that will come soon, has set up an internal... Um, independent mission to investigate these abuses, and Human Rights Watch has warned that Myanmar's government risks getting bracketed with pariah states like North Korea and Syria if it doesn't allow the UN on the ground to investigate these crimes. And so this is this is really serious. We haven't had a UN identified genocide for for a while. It's unfortunate. It's it's unfortunate, but these actually happen 
more than you would think. But I think the last UN labeled genocide, yeah, because they didn't even label the Sudan as a genocide, right? I don't remember whether the UN did. I'm pulling up the list. Yeah, they haven't. So the last, the last main genocide would be the Bosnian genocide uh, that lasted from 1992 to 1995, with then sort of, I think, acknowledgments of the Srebrenica massacre and various ISIS slash ISIL genocides that have occurred. But in terms of like an actual state that's recognized by the UN engaging, this is the first time. And it's worth noting, and, and years. So all, all of these have specific legal definitions. Like everything yeah, exactly. that we call a genocide doesn't fit the legal definition of genocide, but also the, the legal definition of genocide has problems with it. Uh, for one, when it was being created, Russia was not okay with killing people for political reasons being part of it. So it isn't part of it because we couldn't have got it passed as a international treaty otherwise mm -hmm. so just because a lot of people end up dying doesn't mean it fits the legal definition of genocide because it's an imperfect definition but that means yes. if something does end up being called a genocide it's likely pretty serious because it's checking off a number of boxes and so whether or not that's okay that's a thing that's debated within human mm -hmm. rights about what bodies are important and what deaths are labeled as important so, and I think that's a conversation for another day. But right. because we focus primarily on human trafficking, we're just kind of giving you the setup. And so a related issue is that a lot of repressive regimes, and sorry, Myanmar, you're, you're not considered one of the most open regimes in the world, mm -hmm. that people are usually smart enough to realize that if they go and they just directly start shooting a lot of people and you know kill 100,000 people, that that's not going to look good. And so there there are other means of doing things, such as burning people's homes and forcing them to flee. Whereas in the process, lots of people die. Lots of people are vulnerable. Lots of people then get subject to other abuses or catch diseases. And so then a regime can wipe its hands and say, well, we, we didn't do that. No, not all of it. But by setting a process in motion they can know that things like that are going to happen. And so I'm not going to project into all the motives of Myanmar's regime, but that's the way that this can play out. And so mm -hmm. when they go and do a forced migration, the government is certainly not innocent. Yes. So what then happens, what, what makes then, why are we talking about the Rohingya on a human trafficking podcast, Seth? Well, what are we doing this? For one... When there is not just a migration, but a very quick migration, then people are not... Vulnerability is an understatement. They're seeking all sorts of ways to better their lives and get into a safer place. And aside from the dangers of being in refugee camps where things like uh, rape and such can happen, they also might pay smugglers to get them to a different country. And in the case of the Rohingya, that's happened before. In 2015, there were uh, men, women, and children who were fleeing Myanmar by boat, and uh, human traffickers wanted them to pay ransoms. They kept them on uh, boats, and uh, one of the 15-year-old girls mentioned how they called her father in Bangladesh, 
made him listen to her cries while they beat her and told him to pay them about 1700 US. And I don't think we've really talked in depth about ransoms before, but that's not an uncommon thing in trafficking. So smuggling is different from trafficking. We have talked about that. So paying someone to move you from one state to another, one place to another, that's not trafficking. That's smuggling. It's once you start to be told you have to do certain things in order to be to gain your freedom. That's the trafficking portion. Portion. So what happens, and, and I'll link to this, of course, is that you know people will be traveling, and suddenly the smuggler will turn to them and become a trafficker when the trafficker says, "Hey, it's going to be twelve hundred dollars, or we push you into the ocean. It's twelve hundred dollars, or I'm just leaving you here." And I'm using $1,200 because USD because that's what was selected. You know, sometimes we get comments on these things like, well, that's not a huge $500, $1,200. That's not, you know, an insurmountable amount of money. It is if you've been living in a refugee camp. It is if you're stateless. It is if you've already paid every single cent you have to get yourself, your friends, your family, your children, your parents over the uh, out, out of harm's way. Very few people are able to pull that. And that's when trafficking gets really, really dangerous. Well, comes in as even more dangerous because you are so vulnerable. So they'll say, well, you need $1,200 or we're going to push you in the ocean. People say, I don't have that. They'll call and ransom you. So they'll call your family at home or your family back at the camp and say, well, she's going to die unless you pay it. If it's still not possible to get that money, they'll say, well, then you can work it off for us but they'll more. They'll be more. And uh, in fairness to smugglers, who, although they are providing a service that is usually not following the laws, most of them are not traffickers. But also, okay. often, there is more than one person in that chain. So you, when we say smuggler, it doesn't mean there's one person who is smuggling them beginning to end. There might be one person who gets them out of the country. There might be one person that transports them to point A, point B, and then when they get to, to point B, somebody that brings them to point C. That also means there are more people who could decide to take advantage of the situation. So there's that. So this, uh, this was something that became an issue, and uh, then in Thailand there was a, a major human trafficking trial in 2016, there were 92 defendants charged with establishing a transnational trafficking network to smuggle refugees from Bangladesh and Myanmar into Malaysia. And in that case, they were exploiting them. And then, aside from the people that died in the process, then uh, in July 2017, a former Thai general was sentenced to 27 years in jail for human trafficking. And there were 60, more than 60 people convicted. So all of that happened and, and gave some precedent before this latest event in mass migration. Mm -hmm. And so September, actually, IOM has said that the Rohingya Muslims fleeing Myanmar are at the mercy of human traffickers. Yeah. Uh, IOM being the International Organization for Migration. And I feel, and I feel like we've talked about the IOM quite quite a bit because what what is happening here is that so we do have we do have a past history of trafficking in particular what we have are two trials um coming out of thailand 
and Malaysia of Rohingya who were trapped on boats in the Bay of Bengal and the Adamant Sea, who suffered physical abuse, who that included physical abuse, sexual abuse, uh, purposeful removal of food, water, and medical care, like forced drowning, so they would hold you underwater and then pull you back up, and that those that died, and this pulls into the Thailand case, were then buried in mass graves. We also had reports of people who were being trafficked via shipping container. I think we've talked about that before, Seth, haven't we? Sort of shipping containers used? We'll continue. Yeah, so shipping containers are a really terrible way to be trafficked, but a lot of people will, will wrongfully think that they're safer than a boat on the open sea. So shipping container is, is really large, right? So imagine sort of like a Mack truck size. And what will happen is, and this does involve sort of a criminal enterprise because you need someone who works at the, the dock, someone who works at the loading center, someone who has access to shipping container. And they'll pack these shipping containers full of people. If you're lucky, they'll include like a, a, a bucket to use as a bathroom, food and water supplies. These containers are then loaded onto large container ships sent out to sea. And then when they arrive in port, there's another group of traffickers or smugglers there who ideally are there to let the people out. The problem is, is that these shipping containers have very little, if any, ventilation. Sometimes traffickers will drill holes in them, but sometimes that's not enough. They get incredibly hot. Imagine basically a giant metal container with no coverage sitting out in the middle of the ocean. People die of heat stroke. People die for lack of water. People get sick on the boats. Um, sometimes something happens and there's no one there to let them. They're trapped from the inside. So it's essentially you're you're putting yourself in a prison at sea to get from one place to another. But it's it's very difficult for this to go out. And that's also, too, you know, sometimes a shipping container is, is sent out to sea for what is supposed to be a two-week trip. But because... You know, most of the time they're shipping couches, they're shipping automobiles and things like that. So if there is a storm or if there's a delay, you know, hey, if we have to be at sea for another month, that's not a big deal. Well, what is a big deal if you're moving people? And a lot of times the people who are on these boats don't know that they have a, a, a group of people on board. And so it's just very, it's a very, very dangerous situation to be in. We've talked about people who have passed away or been killed because they've been being trafficked or transported cross-country just sort of in box trucks. And this is sort of the extreme version of that. Well, when there's a lot of a lot of people and moving, so it, people who are want to traffic can go and talk to people and offer them services because people who smuggle aren't on the sidelines. There they're, they're are people aggressively selling services. And so there's the, on one hand, there's money that can be made, but on the other hand... There's the idea that people are cheap and disposable. Yeah. And so you can see, well, can we extract money? If not, we can dispose of them. And when there's a lot of people mm -hmm. moving, as in hundreds of thousands of people all at once, some people look at that and they think opportunity. Well, and that's the thing, too, with sort of things like shipping containers or boats. It's that, well, we couldn't, we extracted the maximum amount of money that we could get from you. So it's time to have you go away so we can use this spot for more money. And so I think that's that's part of one of the differences. And then so what we see in the Malaysia case is the finding of initially 36 bodies, but then more uh, buried in shallow graves or buried in mass graves. And these are people who were taken into 
but either they didn't survive the journey or once they arrived in country, they fell victim to the work of, of traffickers and were subsequently killed either through mistreatment or lack of care or through like overtly through beatings or things like this. That's part of the other thing that I think we need to talk about here, which is once you're in country from a trafficker, it doesn't mean that again, once they've gotten the money from you, you're free. You've entered into a country you've entered into with a trafficker. They may have your documents. They have, may have money. You may have been split up from your party. So one of the things we're going to talk about is you end up with, say, children separated from parents. So they'll bring the parents first and say, well, we'll bring your children later or vice versa. But in order to do that, you have to then work for us. And so all of that ends up being within this, this vulnerable population. So what you then end up having because people have been separated is this vulnerable population that's now arrived in country that is stateless, that is illegal, that is terrified of being sent back to, to what they consider. And certainly now the international community is labeling a certain death. And so they're going to do what the trafficker tells them to do, whether it's to get their children out of harm's way, whether it's to keep on surviving or whether it's out of fear. And I think you and I have articulated pretty well now in like the history of our podcast about what, that results in, you know, like what it does to you psychologically. Well, and even as we discuss how to give aid and, uh, you know, the U.S. has said that they're going to give aid along with, you know, the rest of the aid that the U.N. is putting together to go to different organizations on the ground. Even when that happens, funding refugee camps and having them run smoothly and having them have enough resources, that's mm -hmm. challenging but also how long those camps operate. So you have like camps in East Africa where they, uh -huh. because people don't want to make permanent establishments because they're refugees, where you have refugees essentially living in non-permanent places for years on end. And so just taking care of people in a refugee camp, there, there's just lots of challenges to that. It's certainly, mm -hmm. it's certainly something, but, but then you have issues of security, safety, disease. So there's a lot of things at play. And, and part of it is just saying, let's give some money to Bangladesh. I mean, that's, I'm thankful for that, but that's not all that needs to be done here. Mm-hmm. Maybe the response would be then, well, why the Rohingya when there's other huge refugee crises going on in the world? Why, why are we talking about the Rohingya now? And I think, one, it's primarily the reports that we're getting that most of the people being tracked now here in 2017 are women and children. Women and children do tend to get more attention in trafficking because they tend to be labeled as victims of sex trafficking more often. We've talked about that. But in particular, the children portion we have we are having tons of what what is labeled um in international as unaccompanied minors so you have a lot of children coming into basically any sort of camp so again in bangladesh and indonesia and they're coming in without parental supervision because parents have sent them ahead or sent them as, to get to freedom as quickly as possible. You know, if you can only 
parents make these decisions all the time. If you can only afford two of you to go, you send the kids, generally, is what happens. And you hope that maybe your 10-year-old can protect your 5-year-old. The problem then is that once these kids are entered into camps, they can't be mixed in or they shouldn't be, according to international law, mixed into just camps with adults without a, f- a family member, without some sort of guardian over them. So they end up having to go to particular detention centers. That is a difficult thing because then you have these masses of undocumented children who don't speak the local language who just go missing. And nobody is ever really sure what happened to them. And so that then opens these kids up for mass exploitation, either in labor, sex trafficking, or both. These are also kids that have been victimized. You know, they've been beaten. They've been starved. They've seen incredible violence. They don't trust the state. So their sort of litmus of, well, I can contact an adult for assistance is is very much broken. And then you have a local population who may look at these kids even with suspicion and so that's why I think it's been popping up more and more with more people talking about the the vulnerability to trafficking just because of the mass number of children that are coming in you also have sort of a thing that I think the international community doesn't always handle super well which is depending certain cultures have like aunts or aunties or uncles or things like family relationships that may not be necessarily like super clear or legally binding uh, but nevertheless are considered to be familial relationships. So maybe it's someone's being sent with say like the equivalent of like a godparent. But then once they arrive in a camp, if they acknowledge that the kid isn't their, their blood relative, people may be separated. So then you have sort of a changing of names or a changing of identification. And then that makes things very, very difficult down the line in terms of tracking people. So there's a lot of facets to this crisis as you're getting Mm -hmm. and when things are happening in this sort of circumstance, then people are just flat out vulnerable. So any final thoughts on this? I I think that it's, it's crazy to me that this isn't, I mean, I, I'm glad that it's getting attention now, but that it hasn't gotten as much attention. I think we can say something about the fact that it is primarily Muslim people of color who are being victimized uh we have a president of Myanmar who currently is sitting with a nobel peace prize (laughs) being accused of allowing genocide to happen in her country on her watch being called out by other nobel peace prize winners uh for her her action or inaction depending on on what school of thought you are um we have you know video and photos taken of rohingya of military firing on groups of of people being beaten with things like hammers so it's just all very strange to me that i mean the international community does move slowly it does we are seeing sort of the un move i think as quickly as they can but we're, I, I think things are still not moving as quickly as they can. No, and this is, as we kind of already said, this isn't the only thing going on in the world. I mean, aside from the ones in the news that are U.S. centric, and you know our own hurricanes that the U.S. has had, you also had, you know, the the flooding in was it South Asia? Yeah, and that's and so, that's just one in one major incident. Exactly, exactly. So it's, it's kind of you have an area in crisis. It's just that we're seeing thousands of people die, uh, seeing sort of the mass public outcry that I would expect. That's the only thing. That's my only sort of major final takeaway. 
I mean, not on something on a positive note, but on something a little bit more proactive, is that if you're interested in trafficking, as you move forward and are looking at, if you're interested in trafficking at all, and you're looking at sort of things that are happening, everything from hurricanes to oil prices changing to genocide, think about how then these particular domestic acts then impact trafficking both domestically and then internationally. And think about what trafficking does to a community. And so that's a very, very quick overview of the Rohingya. Oh yeah, it's a lot more nuanced than that. Well, that's that story, and uh, come back next week and we'll talk about something else. Bye, everyone. Bye! This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.